You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Growing up, Ryan Archidiakono loved playing basketball. He would practice in his living room with one of those Fisher Price hoops. He'd do buzzer beaters even as a little kid. And the crowd of stuffed animals would go, ah! And in high school, he loved to keep playing. And he particularly, he did really well, but he loved to practice those dramatic moments in basketball that are rare, especially a buzzer beater. Uh, which, if you don't know, is one of those moments in basketball where the team is much less involved and it's really kind of down to one person. You've got a few seconds left, the score is tied, or you know you might be a little bit behind, but it's a, it's a chance to be a hero. Because if you can get into position and release the ball, if it can go through the net in just the right moment before the buzzer goes, you're a hero. And it's all about you and you're incredible because you saved the day. And those moments are rare, but they do happen. It never actually happened for him, but he loved practicing for those moments. And then in college, he was good. He played for Villanova, uh, which is a good team. And he wasn't good enough to get drafted by the NBA. So when he was a senior in college, he was playing for Villanova. And they made it to the, the tournament, uh, March Madness, the, the most important games in college basketball. And they made it all the way to the final, the most important game in college basketball, Villanova versus North Carolina. And the game was close all the way through. And Ryan is playing incredible. They called him the Arch of Dimes, which I don't really get the nickname, but that was it. And in the last 4.7 seconds, the score is really close, and all of a sudden, it's that kind of a moment. Someone on the team is going to have to take a shot. Hopefully they can beat the buzzer and win the game and the tournament and become the hero. And he's a senior on the team, so he's going to get the ball. And he's been practicing for this moment. The, the captain of the team, who's the only other senior, looks at him and says, you, can, you cannot let this go. You have to take the shot. You have to make the shot. And they're all confident he can do it, but still the captain goes and takes the broom out of the hand of the janitor. He's like personally sweeping the floor to get rid of all the sweat so it'll be nice and dry when he goes to take the shot. 4.7 seconds to go. They inbound the ball to Arch. Three seconds, he's across the half-court line. Two and a half seconds, he's down at the bottom of the court. There are two big guys between him and the hoop. And he starts going for it. He knows he can make the shot. His whole life has been leading up to this moment. This is his last game, maybe in basketball, forever. He's a senior. This is it. 1.9 seconds. He's getting closer to the hoop. The two guys are between him. And all of a sudden, he hears one of his teammates say, Arch. And in less than a tenth of a second, he passes the ball. Kevin Jenkins, who takes the shot. Uh, He hits it. And Villanova wins, and it's a buzzer beater, and it's incredible. They win the game, they win the tournament. Jenkins is a hero. He's incredible. The team is all over him. The interviews are all over him. He's doing morning shows. He's on YouTube. They have a parade in the streets just for Jenkins. It's incredible. He's amazing. Everyone remembers his name and that moment from that game. It is the second time in NCAA history it has ever decided the tournament, a buzzer beater. Unbelievable. And very few people remember who passed him the ball. In an interview after the fact, uh, Ryan Archidicani, he he said, you know, most people, they dream about taking the shot. Nobody dreams about making the pass. Which do you think is more difficult? 
taking that glory for yourself, throwing up the ball, becoming the hero, or allowing somebody else to share in that moment because you believe in something greater than yourself. Would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. We're in a series called Hashtag Here, Now, Us. We're continuing through Nehemiah exactly where we picked up. Nehemiah 5.14. Moreover, this is Nehemiah talking, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took food and wine from them besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so, is the fear of God. Indeed, I devoted myself to the work of the wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared for one day was one ox, six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me, and every ten days skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nehemiah is an incredible leader. The more you read this book, the more obvious that will become to you. He's just constantly leading. He, he never seems to forget that people are watching him. He's a servant leader. Somebody who rolls up his sleeves and gets involved in the work. And servant leaders know that they are always leading. Which is actually something that Jesus talks about and why he calls us to be these kinds of leaders, uh, the kind that Nehemiah embodies. There's a story in Matthew 20 where Jesus and his friends have been together for a long time, the disciples. And two of the guys, the Zebedee brothers, sort of feel like it's their time for a promotion. And when they, they come to talk to Jesus about it, they bring their mom. And their mom looks at Jesus and says, hey, Listen, these boys left a solid fishing business to be a part of your organization, sir. And whenever this whole kingdom of God thing pays off, I want some guarantees that, you know, they're going to be like your right and your left hand men. Like, they've given up a lot for this. And Jesus looks at them and says, you know, uh, ma'am, I'm not 100% sure you understand who I am or what exactly we're doing here. And the ten guys get pretty upset by the whole situation. They're upset by the maneuvering. They're upset by the mom card that got played. They're upset, I think, that they didn't think of it first. And they're upset at the idea that they might get demoted and that these guys might somehow be their bosses. And Jesus has this sort of team meeting, and he sits everybody down and he says, Guys, listen, you know that in the world around us, that's exactly how it works. That people strive for power and promotion and money, and they're just sort of clawing to become the most important person in the room because then you can lord it over everybody else. And that's not how it works with us. If you want to be great, you have to become a servant. If you want to be first, you're going to need to be last. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Those of us who follow Jesus, we are called to a different way of life. 
we're all called to be leaders, servant leaders, which means, of course, that it doesn't matter what title you actually have or what status or what power or mo what money you have in life, because honestly, leadership doesn't depend on those things. It depends on the way you live your life. Nehemiah shows us this, right? that the title is not where we get our authority from. That authority does not come from your position. It, it comes from the way you live your life, from your character. Respect is the sort of thing that, that's earned. It can't be purchased. We, we know this. Nehemiah in chapter 5 mentions that he's the governor of Judah. For five chapters, he has not mentioned that he is the governor of Judah. Which is conspicuous the more you think about it. When his brother came to him and they were all upset about Judah, and he, he's writing this down, he doesn't say, I didn't realize that one day I would become the most important person in all of Judah. Kind of incredible, and I would save the day. He doesn't mention when he's talking to the king that he's made governor after that conversation. Well, you know, because the king and I are such good friends and he really trusts me. I don't want to name drop, but like I know Artaxerxes and he made me, you know, the man that I am. That I'm the governor. He doesn't mention that God has given me such gifts, that God loves me so much, that God has just so wondrously blessed me with wisdom that that's why I have this position. He doesn't mention it when in chapter 3 and chapter 4 he's being actively opposed that there are people trying to stop him from the work that he's doing and threatening him. He doesn't say, look, you guys better cut it out. I'm the governor. I'm important. Stop it. You're not going to get away with this. He never seems to play that card. When he's trying to convince other people to work on the wall, he doesn't say, I'm the governor, so you have to listen and do what I say. Instead, he tries to inspire and motivate people and say, look what we could do together. God is with us. When people are fighting against them, he says, remember God is with us. At no point does Nehemiah say, I'm the governor, so I get to decide what we're going to do. He never leans on his position and believes that that's where he gets his authority from. This is a lesson for you and I in the world today. As people who want to follow Jesus, it doesn't really matter if you officially have some position of power in the world. Now, of course, in America, we all love titles. It's really important to us. We love adding a little bit more to a resume. We love being able to name drop and talk about the people we know and, and the kind of position we've acquired over the years. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's going to be for people who follow me. And we've all kind of lived in jobs where someone gets promoted who maybe shouldn't have been. And suddenly we're working underneath someone who thinks that they're in charge just because someone put them in charge. And technically that's true. And you do sort of have to listen to them. But you're never really that invested in following a boss who just became your boss and doesn't seem to be, well, trying to help you thrive along the way. Doesn't seem to be invested in your flourishing. They seem to think, well, because I'm here, I just get to tell people what to do. Some of us over the years who've ended up in positions like that have learned some hard lessons about leadership, that that's not actually the way you get to lead, that, that actually the most effective leaders are people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and work alongside people. They look for opportunities to serve. This is actually something that the business world has recently sort of found out about. It's largely because there are some Christian businessmen and women who are extremely effective at what they do. And so in the secular business world, you can find books on servant leadership that at no point mention Jesus as the guy who came up with the idea. This very counterintuitive principle, they say, where the person in charge doesn't act like they're in charge all the time. They never just hang on to the fact that they're in charge and say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. 
And they listen actually to their low level employees and say, what do you think we could do to improve things? They create cultures that are open and honest where they can really learn about what they're doing badly and what they're doing wrong. They have this strange approach to power and it's weirdly effective in business. And one of the examples is uh, the CEO of Popeyes. I don't know if you know Popeyes, but they make a mean chicken sandwich. I'm a fan of Chick-fil-A, I'm not getting into this. But Popeyes, who makes a mean chicken sandwich, just a few years back, they were just a sleepy chain in the South. They weren't really doing a whole lot. They'd been through four different CEOs. None of them were great. Their franchisees referred to themselves as abused children, people who purchased their way in. They, they thought that was a good metaphor for themselves. And uh, Cheryl Bashelder became the CEO. She'd been on the board, and the board unanimously voted to make her the CEO. And she said, the Bible verse that's on my calendar every day is Philippians 2.3. She said this is a Harvard Business Review. Because I haven't found one that's more paramount to how I want to lead my family and my work. And that is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I really like the choice of words, others being more significant than yourselves. I believe we're all born with an inner two-year-old. And we'd really still like to be laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, because we didn't get that candy bar we wanted. It's pretty hardwired into us that we're self-absorbed. And we learn to fake it well, but we're still pretty much that two-year-old, self-absorbed little person on the inside. I find that the biblical perspective is really challenging to every aspect of my day. I'm constantly asking myself the question, am I doing this for me or because I actually care about the people that I serve? Do we actually care about the people that we serve. Servant leadership. Something that means that we're always looking for opportunities to serve other people. But Nehemiah does this in the story, and it's partly because he realizes that people will do what they see you do. He says there used to be other governors, and those governors would tax the people, and governors can do that, but they didn't seem to pay attention to the fact that the people they're taxing aren't doing very well. And so they took money from farmers who didn't have a lot of well, money, and they took money from merchants who didn't have a lot of well, money. And they got to live like governors, and they got to, you know, kind of lord it over people. And the people who worked for them saw that, and they lorded it over people, it says in verse 15. Not me, he says. Because I know that ultimately, even when I'm in charge, there's someone still in charge of me. And I fear God. And so I led very differently. Whenever there was a project to be done, I was in the project. I was serving right alongside people, working on the wall. When people were threatening us, I didn't stay in some mansion. I came and had a sword on my hip, and I was sleeping alongside everybody else, fighting alongside everybody else. And my servants saw it, and they got along too. They dove right into the work with us. They learned how to lead by watching me lead. And I led by not leading, just by serving alongside other people. When you look for opportunities to serve, other people will do what you do. And this is one of the reasons, again, we can be sure that servant leaders can lead even if they don't have a title or a position. You may not be the superintendent of your district or in the administration of your school. Uh, you may not be the manager in your particular department or the CEO of your company. You may actually just be a low-level employee with a shift boss who's pretty obnoxious. And the way you respond to an obnoxious boss can communicate volumes, not just to your boss, but to the other people that you work with. You actually have a unique ability to influence the culture of the work environment that you're in. And Christians, we are always people who say, how can I serve? How can I serve? How do I show up early and stay late? 
Not because I want to be a workaholic, but because I know who my boss is. And it's not you. You're a horrible boss. But I know who my boss is, and I care that he sees that I work hard. And when I show up to work, even in a pandemic, I want to be a person of hope. Because I know the one in whom I've put my trust, and I am confident that he can keep me safe in this season. I want to be a person with energy and passion, even in really difficult seasons. I know that I can dominate in this moment rather than to be dominated by the surrounding malaise in our world. And I can do that by, by being somebody who shows up and serves, by looking for those opportunities. Not just at work, but in everything that you do. I've known Christians over the years, the weird thing about being a pastor is you get this weird, like, behind-the-scenes view of a lot of people's faith. And so I've seen people who run successful law firms, who have lots and lot millions of dollars, who will show up to a church on the weekends to clean the bathrooms. And when you notice, they say, please don't tell anybody. This isn't about, I just don't want people to know. I just thought this was a good way to serve my community and really for me to learn to, to wash other people's feet. I've, I've known people, right, single women who say, you know, I, I've been reading the Bible and it talks about loving my neighbors and I'm living in this upper middle class community with gates and I think I need to move to a bad neighborhood so that I can really get in the midst of some people I don't know well and who don't look like me and, and learn to love them well. I just think that's a good way for me to wash people's feet. I've known folks over the years who, who get a massive inheritance for something or a raise of their job, and they go, usually I tithe 10% of my money, but I, I want to find a way to give 90% of this. I just feel like God's calling me to give really generously. And I've gotten to see people in this community over time, honestly, who are willing to show up behind the scenes. Uh, some of you may not realize, actually, there's some folks on this call who are consistently trying to figure out ways to encourage you. Consistently trying to find ways to build community in this crazy season to make sure that nobody in our community is in serious financial need. Some of those folks have lost jobs, and they're still making sure that they're committed to what we're doing financially. They dive in, day in and day out. They are constantly looking for opportunities to serve. And it has an effect. It has an effect on your neighborhood. It has an effect on your family. It has an effect on where you work. Imagine being the kind of person who, at the end of a long day, chooses to do the dishes the instant you walk in the house, chooses to make dinner, the instant, even when you've had a really long day. Imagine the effect that has on your spouse. Something tells me you know what that, it just, it was kind of hard yesterday, and it's actually been kind of hard for a couple of weeks, and honestly, I just, I haven't really felt like serving a lot lately because I'm just really tired. And the coronavirus is a great excuse for all of us to sort of avoid positions and opportunities to serve. And the truth is, all we have to do is just not look as hard as we used to, and, and, but we won't find opportunities to serve. And yet Jesus, one of the last acts he has with his disciples is this completely unnecessary act of service. They're all about to have dinner. They've already washed their feet. And Jesus takes off his coat, ties a towel around his waist, and says, I'm going to wash your feet. And they're all very upset by the idea because the whole reason you start following this rabbi is that someday you want a position like his so other people wash your feet. That's the idea. I'm climbing a ladder here. If you're at the top of the ladder and you're washing my feet, that undermines the whole thing. And Jesus says, look, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're, you're not going to have any part of what I'm doing. You need to understand that I've come into this world to wash crap off of other people's feet. And those who follow me, you have signed up for that kind of service. We're called to this magnificent life, the kind of life that Nehemiah leads. Not just getting involved in what other people do, but really just leading all the time. Seeing everything that he does as an opportunity to lead. He, 
he chooses not to take a governor's salary for 12 years. That's what he says. And so at first he says from the 20th year to the 32nd year, and then just drives home the point. By the way, that was 12 years in case you can't do math. He says, that was very expensive for me because I'm still a governor and I still have to live the way a governor does. I have to throw state dinners. I have to provide for my staff. And so that's an ox, that's six sheep, that's a whole bunch of birds every day and a lot of wine. Who do you think's paying for that? That's not the Persian government and that's not these people. I didn't tax them. They didn't realize that I wasn't taxing them. I didn't want to add to the burden of labor. And so I just sort of sneakily threw big state dinners on my own dime which is a bit like saying the kinds of people he invites in the course of this passage, the Jews, officials, and then just random people from the countryside. It would be like the governor of Arizona throwing a big state dinner, like he does, and inviting all of the, the Republican donors, because he's Republican, and all of the, the party members and all of the really significant legislatures left and right. All these people come to a dinner, and then just some people from my church, and also some homeless folks. That's the kind of dinner Nehemiah is throwing on a regular basis. He's just blending all sorts of people from all different kinds of society, showing us exactly what Israel looks like when you really believe in a God who loves the poor, the widow, the marginalized, the orphan, the oppressed. You blend a lot of people together at a table. Nehemiah is always leading, not just in opportunities when, you know, he can speak and tell people what to do, but even when he eats dinner in his house, even the way he, he deals with his salary and the way he gives to his community. Always looking for an opportunity to lead. There's a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard who's really hard on pastors, and I like reading him a lot uh, because he's always preaching at me. Uh, he died like 200 years ago. But he has great stuff to say, and one of the things he loves to say is this. Pastors are great, and they have great sermons. I'm paraphrasing. He's Danish. Pastors are great. They have great sermons. Take away the sermons. Make them mute for the rest of their lives. And then could you still tell it was Christianity they were preaching? If all you had was their life, would you still know it was Jesus they were talking about? That's a convicting idea for me, but I think actually it works for anybody who follows Jesus. If you were unable to speak for the rest of your life, would people still know that it was Jesus you followed? That it was Christianity you preached? By the way, this is one of the most effective kinds of evangelism in the history of the world. Consistently, people who live lives that look like servant leader lives find that they're just so unusual for their environment. They're cheerful when everyone else is annoyed. They're respectful when they talk about a boss who is not respectable. They look for opportunities to move chairs and clean up messes that other people make. They let other people steal ideas, and they still speak the truth, but they always do it in love. And little by little, people say, what is the deal with you? Because they're always preaching the gospel and they don't necessarily need words to do it. They live their lives in a particular way. Those of us with kids know that this is just the truth about how life is lived. I don't get the opportunity to just give my kids great lessons periodically. I have lots of good one-liners. And if it was five minutes periodically on like how to be a person, I'd be great. But instead they watch me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And sometimes I snap at my wife. And sometimes... I yell, and sometimes I'm kind of lazy, and sometimes I don't take responsibility for my actions. Sometimes I'm slow to forgive and quick to be angry. And then I watch my kids snap at each other, or yell, or not take responsibility for their actions, or be, you know, slow to forgive and quick to be angry. And I think, man, 
I can't believe Jess is teaching them how to do this. That's just so sad that my wife is such a bad influence on my children. Where are they getting this kind of stuff? And the truth is we know that it's not just people with kids. That's, that's true for all of us. We are always leading. We always have an opportunity. We're either leading well or we're leading badly. We're leading people toward Jesus or, well, away from Jesus. And when, ah, gosh, I was first uh, exploring ministry a long, long time ago, I, I volunteered with a high school organization. So it was me and a bunch of other college students, and we would hang out with high school kids from time to time. And we loved it. It was a lot of fun. And there was one day that our boss, our volunteer boss, uh, showed up, and she was going to evaluate us. And when she showed up, she dove right into everything that we were doing. And we took it really seriously because we wanted to do well because we knew she'd give us some real feedback. So we did our best. But when she showed up, she did stuff that I wasn't really paying attention to at the time. Uh, she made sure to, to join in everything that was happening. When kids were there, she was welcoming kids. When, when games were happening, she was intensely competitive in the games. When chairs needed to be set up, she was setting up chairs, even though that wasn't really her job. And at the end of the day, we were sitting down and we were talking to her. And she said, you know, you guys were great. The person who preached the message, great. The games, hilarious. People inviting people in, you did so well. In every way, you guys were great. And we were sort of waiting for the, the but. But. But the thing is, when you weren't preaching the message, the rest of you kind of didn't care about what was being said. Because you thought, well, I already know this, and this isn't that important to me. And if this isn't my job. So you were kind of doing your own thing, and you know, the kids around you picked up on it. And so they, they didn't pay as much attention as maybe they would. And when it came to welcoming kids in, some people were really welcoming, but the rest of you were like, well, this isn't really my job. And you're fiddling on cell phones or talking to each other, or just sort of ignoring what was going on around you. And that, that undermined that. So it felt kind of like the people welcoming people in were just sort of acting because not everyone's as excited to see me as I thought they would be. And when it came time for a game, some of you were in, but some of you just didn't want to be embarrassed or couldn't really be bothered. It was too much energy and you forgot that you're always leading. The people around you are watching you and listening to you. And they're trying to figure out whether or not this is a God we want to follow. Nehemiah knew this. He was good at it. And he knew, by the way, that not everybody notices. Sometimes when you're a servant leader, it just kind of happens behind the scenes. And that's sort of the point. Sometimes people don't really recognize how great it is. And, and so Nehemiah says, you know what, I, I know that even if nobody else sees it, God sees it. And there's this little note, kind of a prayer in his own memoir about what's happened. Remember, God, everything I did for this people. I'm not sure they will remember, but I know you will. I know you'll remember that I took every opportunity I could to serve. That I never asked people to do something I wasn't willing to do. That I knew that my authority didn't come from the position I'd been given, but from the way that I lived my life. And I lived my life every day as though I were a leader. I was always leading. And I hope that you and I can say the same when we come to the end of our lives. That we were always leading. And in this season, more than most, the world needs people who are leading as servants toward the kingdom of God and the ultimate servant leader, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?